You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Episode 112 of that one time on tour is brought to you by the band Steel Justice. Steel Justice, spelled S-T-E-E-L-E, is a punk rock band from Belgium that combines the classic 90s skate punk sound with elements of hardcore. After three years, Steel Justice is finally releasing their second album, The Way the Cookie Crumbles, on October 10th. Once live shows are allowed again, Steel Justice will be playing as many shows as possible, including an appearance on the legendary Punk Rock Holiday Festival in Slovenia. For more information on Steel Justice, you can check them out on Facebook at Steel Justice Band 3600 or on Instagram at Steel.Justice. Now here it is, their new single, Acid Love.
It is now 2024, and the choice is up to you. Do you listen to good podcasts, or do you listen to bad ones? Well, we've got a suggestion for you. How about you listen to a good podcast for the first time in your miserable life? I can think of one. Overnight Drive. Going strong. 11 years now. The podcast about nothing. Your favorite podcast's favorite podcast. Do you enjoy nothing? <laughs> so do we. Why don't you come over and check it out. And stop listening to other podcasts. Thank you. Hey, this is Christopher Rowe from the Ataris, and you're listening to That One Time on Tour. Everybody out there in podcast land, what is going on? This is Chris Swinney. As always, I am your host for that one time on tour. If this is your first time joining me, this is my podcast where I get to sit down with somebody in or around the entertainment industry and have a stellar conversation. Thank you so much for coming back. If you've been here before, I appreciate it. How's everybody doing out there? The virus is still upon us. States are backing up their opening phases. Bars are closing. Things are going crazy. Uh, Here in Indiana, we were holding steady, but now we are almost 40% up on cases. I know California and Texas and Florida, they're having some issues. So I hope you are well out there. We're living in some strange times. I don't know what's going to happen next. But the one thing that I can continue to do, even though I'm not working, is this podcast, because I know that a lot of you out there want to hear this every week. I get great emails, great feedback from everybody. So thank you so much for all of the support. I'll continue to do this because it does keep my mind off of how crazy the world is right now. So uh, speaking of working, yes, I'm not working, but I am doing remote guitar lessons. If you guys are interested in, you know, making your your abilities a little bit better, working on some music theory, some uh, scale exercises, whatever you're into, or if you're a beginner completely and you have just want to try some guitar during the quarantine, hit me up, ChristopherSwinney at gmail.com. That is S-W-I-N-N-E-Y. Or you can hit me up on all of the, the podcast stuff as well, and uh, we'll take care of it. So today on the program, my buddy, Christopher Rowe of the Ataris. This is Chris's second time on the program. I think it's been a little over a year, year and a half since the last time he was on. But I had a cancellation, and I knew that Chris was stuck out in the desert during the, the lockdown. So I got a hold of him, and we did an episode. So I'd like to thank Chris for coming on the show. 
Uh, we talk about all kinds of cool stuff. A lot of it has to do with COVID and everything, uh, but we also talk about songwriting and growing up in Indiana and starting the band and playing the first few Atari shows with a drum machine. We talk about all kinds of cool stuff. So before I get to my conversation with Chris, got to get some stuff out of the way. We have sponsors, some amazing sponsors for this episode. Steel Justice, the band at the beginning, they're out of Belgium. Make sure when you're looking for Steel Justice, you spell steel right. It is S-T-E-E-L-E, Justice. Steel Justice. You can check them out on Facebook, Steel Justice Band 3600, or on Instagram, steel.justice. Thank you guys so much for sponsoring. I really appreciate it. Up next, we've got rockabilia.com. Frankie and all the fine folks over at Rockabilia will take care of anything that you need concerning band merchandise. If you want a Misfit shirt, they've got it. You want a Metallica shirt, they've got it. Any band ever, 500,000 unique items, fully licensed from the bands, which means the bands are getting paid. So check out rockabilia.com and tell them that I sent you. James Devlin Art. James Devlin is an amazing illustrator and artist out of Australia. He's done artwork for probably all of your favorite bands. So check out jamersdesign.com. That is J-A-M-E-R-S-D-E-S-I-G-N.com and have James do some art for you. Last but not least, my buddy Gary over at Parts Caster Concierge. Parts castorconcierge.com. He builds guitars and they're amazing. He did a guitar raffle a while back, gave all kinds of money to charity, and they're doing a new raffle right now over at partscasterconcierge.com. Check them out. Gary built a guitar for me and it's the, my favorite guitar I've ever played. So hit up Gary, have him work on your stuff, partscasterconcierge.com. If you guys would like to become a sponsor, Hit me up, podcast at gmail.com, or send me a DM on any of the socials. All the socials are the same, at podcast. All of those links, plus everything else that has to do with the podcast, is at tototpodcast.com. If you guys would like to support the show on a financial level, head on over to patreon.com forward slash podcast. I would like to give a shout out to our three Patreon producers, Bob Foster out of Hemet, California, John, John Exton out of Stafford, England, and Mr. Dewey Halpus from the Peer Pleasure Podcast way out in Portland, Oregon. Thank you guys so much for the support. Check out the Patreon, all of those links as well, tototpodcast.com. If you want to make a one-time donation to help the show out, help out your favorite podcast host, you can hit up my Venmo. That is at Christopher Swinney, S-W-I-N-N-E-Y. The easiest and cheapest way to help the podcast is to make sure that you are subscribing, rating, and reviewing wherever you listen. Okay, so today we have a radio segment that fits very well with this episode, so cue the theme music. On this edition of TOTOT Radio, uh, it fits this episode well, like I said. 
Uh, one of my favorite tours I ever did was with the Ataris and Mr. Christopher Rowe. We went to South Africa back in 2009, and it was a life-changing trip. I met some people that have remained friends with me the entire time since we did it. And the people were so gracious and just so nice. And I was digging around, and I found a live version that we did from a radio station in Johannesburg of Boys of Summer. And I figured, why not? I'm going to go ahead and play it. So this is the Ataris with yours truly on lead guitar. Uh, and this is from 2009 in Johannesburg, South Africa from Live FM, Live 5 FM, something like that. I can't remember the actual name of uh, the radio station, but it's pretty cool. And at the beginning, I kind of mess up the, the little intro. So, uh, yeah, that's me messing up. I think we did this. I think we got off the plane after like 20 hours of flying and they took us straight to this radio station. So I think that's my excuse for messing up. But uh, this is Boys of Summer live from the Ataris all the way back in 2009 in Johannesburg, South Africa. Here it is.
What's inside my head said Don't look back You can never look back I thought I knew what love was What did I know? If those days are gone forever I should just let them go back I can't see you The brown screen shining in the sun So there it was, Boys of Summer, live from Johannesburg, 2009, from the Atari's Africa Invasion Tour 2009. One of my favorite tours I've ever been a part of. It was amazing, and uh, I'm hoping to get Nancy, our tour manager from that tour, on the program in the future. But that is the intro. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Make sure to hit me up on the socials at TOTOT Podcast. Or just head on over to TOTOTpodcast.com for all the links to everything your heart could desire. So this is it. This is my conversation with my good buddy, my old bandmate. I love this dude so much. Here it is, my conversation with Mr. Christopher Rowe of the Ataris. Here we go. And I'm on the line with good buddy of mine, Mr. Christopher Rowe from the Ataris. What is going on with you today, man? Hey, man. Nice to talk to you. Uh, thanks for having me back. And uh, not much. Just hanging out. Been doing a bunch of live streams. And tonight I'm doing this So Long Astoria album live stream. So I was about to start brushing up on the handful of songs that I don't really remember <laughs> yeah. too well. <laughs> well, that that's cool, man. I've been watching the live streams a lot. And, you know, you were... I want to kind of go into this whole story because... About a month and a half, two months ago, I found out you were in Indiana, very close to where I was. I was going to try to get you a guitar, but then I got sick and my kids got sick and it kind of just never happened. And the next thing I knew, you were out in the desert somewhere. So can you kind of take me through the beginning of this pandemic and how you kind of navigated through and what happened to you? Yeah, of course. Right after I talked to you. So this would have been in... Uh just so everybody kind of knows the timeline with the pandemic going on. I, I, I kept like a, kept a journal in my uh, calendar, my iCal. So that way I would like know the days I was sick. So uh, I arrived in Indiana on the 12th of March. Our tour was supposed to start the following week, but the first venue got destroyed by a tornado in Nashville. Uh, and uh, it's actually all the photos you see of that tornado that happened, the big tornado outbreak. That was the venue that exit in, uh, I think that's what it was. No, it was an accident. Well, anyway, uh, anyway, where we were supposed to play got destroyed. The next show would have been Lexington with the Queers. And then that, uh, that following week, all touring got canceled. And I was stuck in Indiana from like the 20th uh, for like a month. And uh, while I was there, um, I just started getting sick around the 20th. And uh, I, I ended up in the hospital once. And uh, they wouldn't test me for the virus because at that time it was like nobody could get a test. So then I ended up going back to the hospital a week later when I kept getting worse. 
and they tested me and I came back with a negative, but I was sick for four weeks and it felt like pneumonia combined with like a really bad flu. I couldn't even get up out of bed. I had to literally tell myself every day, like, get up, dude, you got to eat something or you're going to die. So I don't know what happened. It could have been a false negative. I, I really feel like there was a chance it was because I've never felt that sickness. I mean, I've been sick many times, but this was just really different. And um, I had all the symptoms except like two or three. Um, I rarely ever get a bad fever. So my fever never broke over like 99.5. Um, but everybody has such different symptoms with this virus. It seems like it's so all over the place. So who knows? I mean, I did enough traveling that it could have very well been that, but the last, the last guess, time that we talked, like you were either in Southeast Asia or Europe or somewhere and you were sick as well before that. Correct. Yeah. That was another, I was in Europe and that would have been another time, like right around the time when everything was breaking in like China I was in Northern Italy and, uh, I ended the tour there. And then I went on to Austria and hung out for like two weeks before I flew home while I was in Austria. After my last couple shows in Italy, I, I ended up getting sick in Austria for two weeks and it was the same kind of thing, uh, except not as bad with the flu symptoms. It was more, uh, uh, just like super, super hard time breathing stuff. So I don't know. I'm thinking one of those two times there was a very small, all to medium possibility that I did have the virus. Um, but like, again, I'll probably get an antibody test when there's a little more science to back it up. And, uh, you know, cause right now I wouldn't be doing anything different. Even if I knew I had it, I'd still be super careful wearing a mask every day and just, you know, making sure that I'm taking all the precautions. But, um, for now, um, you know, I'll just keep, keep living the day to day until I'm able to go back and, do what I love and go on tour and be back with my wife again, which is like the hardest part of all this. That's one She's thing I wanted to talk worker. about because you, you were in Indiana, but then now you're out in the desert. So kind of take me through that. Like when you decided to leave Indiana, did you like rent a car? Like what happened? No, I, I had the van cause I, I drove out to Indiana to visit my mom and daughter right before the tour started. And it was one of those things where, uh, you know, at least something good came out of it. You know, I get to see the family <laughs> But then I got stuck there when all touring got canceled and I didn't know how I was going to get home. I literally only packed for a three week tour, but, um, I, I knew eventually I was going to work my way back out West towards where I live. And, um, you know, I, I started feeling a little better after four weeks and then I got on the road and then I got sick again. And I, so I just had to kind of stop for a couple of days and, and just like, um, rented like an Airbnb for a couple of days, uh, on the way out, way out. And then, uh, drove all the way back, uh, back to the, to, um, to the desert where I'm staying now and, uh, couldn't go home because my wife works in healthcare and we just, it's one of those things where she has to get, get tested daily. And they, you know, she has to like, you know, take off all her garb at, at her work and before she gets home and, and wash everything right when she gets home. And she just knows that if I were there, it, it'd be super dangerous. I was born with asthma and a lot of respiratory problems. So assuming I'd didn't ever have this virus and I got sick. I mean, it, you know, I mean, I, I, it would just be one of those things that I don't think she, she would wants to risk that. And I agree, you know, as tough as it is, I think we both feel like waiting it out until it's safe is really our only option right now, as much as that sucks. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's the not knowing because I, I just like, Literally, before I got on the phone with you, I got an email from the owner of the music store that I teach at, 
and they were eyeing yeah. like June 4th possibly to do lessons again. And now they're saying it could be August 4th because of the health department, because the studios are so small, you can't do the yeah. social distancing. And I've been doing okay. I've been doing, you know, remote lessons. They're not as easy because I'm not there. I can't like touch the guitar and show the kid what to do. Yeah. But it's working for me right now. But that whole not knowing like when is live music going to come back? I mean, for you and then for me teaching, you know, am I ever going to be able to be in a room with a kid again, showing him a Metallica song? Like yeah. everybody's futures are kind of up in the air. And I think it's the not knowing, like, do you, I, I know you're now doing these live streams. Has that kind of at least made you feel a little bit more connected to, to everybody out there? Well, yeah. I mean, to answer your first part, yeah, obviously the uncertainty for a while was my hardest part that really got me kind of down and depressed and I never really deal with that. But after a while, I think the best thing I learned to do is let go and just kind of like, I started just feeling like, uh, if I just live, live the life, you know, kind of one day at a time and know that, you know, today I'm, I'm living, I'm breathing, I'm healthy. I've got a roof over my head and I've got food and that's, that's what matters. And it'll not play with my mental state as much, but you know, I'm, I'm an optimist and I'm also a realist at heart and I feel like any of these reopenings are way soon. I think, obviously, I, I totally empathize with anyone who can't go back to work. I get it. If I didn't have these live streams and that little amount of tips and donations, I would be screwed. I don't have money saved up. I'm just a day-to-day -day guy. I go on tour, and that's how I make a living. Yeah. Bands, You know this. Bands don't make money off of royalties. Yeah. Maybe a little, a couple hundred bucks every six months, but not, not much. So for me, I feel realistically real live touring isn't going to come back to there's a vaccine. They seem to say at the very earliest end of the year, if that's a, if that's like a miracle, if not, it could be up to 18 months. I do not think, I think anyone announcing tours for the end of this year aren't going to play them. And they're going to have to reschedule them. Yeah. We might reschedule something for winter, but that's a real optimistic, like, okay, I hope this happens. And if, if not, I don't think we're going to tour until next fall. That is my realistic but I think I really hope I'm wrong. So yeah. But but part two of your question, as far as like uh, the, the live streams and stuff, um, yeah. I mean, I feel like that's been been a blessing, and it's really helped a lot mentally, and it's really helped, you know, some you know the people who tip and donate and are super generous in that way. That's helped out a lot, and I feel really grateful for that. And um, you know, that that's been the one thing I look forward to every day for sure. That's <laughs> so helped fill some time. You're just by yourself in this little desert town, right? Correct. Yes. Just me. I don't even have my dog with me. That's crazy, it's, uh, man. It's fucking, it's, it's hard sometimes, you know, the, the, the savior of it all is like, it's a beautiful place. And there's really only a couple, like, I mean, I mean a couple, like less than 10 cases of the virus right now where I am. But if you go to the, the, the large cities that are an hour to two hours from here, there's thousands. So I feel like it, I'm happy to be in a place that's super isolated. Whereas, you know, where I live in, in Los Angeles, there's 30,000 as of last week yeah. in Los Angeles County. So, you know, but I'm also being that my wife's there. I can't help but think of her every day and think of what she's going through and what she has to go through where she works. And, um, so, you know, I'm definitely carrying that burden because I love her and, and care about her. And, and that's just, she's a part of me. So it's, it's tough, you know, but, but I'm ble I feel blessed for where I am and I just got to take the good and the bad, you know, and know that she's doing everything she can to stay, healthy and, and her time. She's smart, smarter than me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I know you're doing these live streams. We're going to talk about the live streams because I think it's really cool. cool. But, uh, other than the live streams, 
what are you kind of taking your time up with? Because you're only on there for a couple hours a night. Are you reading? Are you listening to music? Are you trying to write stuff? Like what's going on there? Good question. <laughs> for a while, when I was sick and when I first got here, I, I I let time get the best for me or best of me, and I just started thinking about this quote in one of this um my, one of my buddies judo came friends with. He was on an episode of Locked Up Abroad, one of the great episodes that um he uh, his friend framed him to go to Pakistan to pick up leather goods, and he got there and he, he was framed into um, picking up drugs and he had no idea of it and. Uh, you know, uh, the dude, you know, says this quote in and about like, uh, you know, you just kind of had to let the time you know, learn to use the time rather than let the time use you. And I think I've heard that in many places, but I heard him saying it in my head and I'm like, you know, I guess just got to like take that to heart. So I just started like trying to do positive things. Like, I, you know, I packed for a three week tour. I only had three weeks of clothes and I lost so much weight <laughs> in this time that none of my clothes even fit me except for a couple smaller shirts I brought. And so, um, didn't have any games with me. I had one little puzzle. I did that. I didn't, I have like an Oculus, but I didn't bring that. Uh, I, I didn't bring anything. So, um, at first it was tough. And then eventually my wife sent me a, a care package with my little Nintendo mini, uh, that has all the games programmed on it. And then my Oculus, but I haven't, I haven't even played those yet. Mostly it's been, uh, the live streams and then preparing, like relearning songs for that. And then oh, there's a lot of beautiful mountains and lakes and things around here. And the state parks are closed, but, I may, I've been able to drive around in the non-state park parts of, of the lakes and the mountains and take a lot of photographs. And I'll do these little solo self-isolation journeys where I don't interact with anyone. I don't even get close to anyone. And there's not that many people in this town anyway. So it, it's like a little old, old Western, old Spanish, Mexican movie set looking town is what wow. it looks like. It's really cool and endearing. So there's a lot of beautiful things to photograph. But at the same time, I can only do so many you know, drives within like a five mile radius with when that starts to get boring. So you just got to keep filling the time. Like honestly, I'll sometimes even just something simple, like going in and taking a shower for a second or third time a day <laughs> just clears my mind. Yeah. You know, it really does just like getting the warm water in my face and just like, you know, and I, and I gotta say, I was never a spiritual person, but those four weeks when I felt like I was going to die during like one to two of them, I just started praying every day. I really did. And I, I like, there was a couple times during that where it was so bleak, where I really felt it was like it was going to happen. Like I was really going to die. I wasn't overblowing shit. I just started praying like 10 to 20 times a day. And it was like talking to my father and my great grandmother who passed away. I just started saying like, look, if if you're out there somewhere and you can hear this, you know, just please watch over me and some sometime reunite me with my wife because that's all I want. And And I really feel like it helped, you know. I mean, whether or not somebody listens, I don't know. That's up to you to decide and how I felt, and that's between me and that. But at the same time, it helped me, and uh, it still helps me. So I'm just going with it, you know. I mean, I get it why why some people feel they need that, and I feel like the reason I don't think I ever – I mean, I got baptized when I was a kid by choice. You know, I went and did it in 2003, but I, I think there was a time when I kind of – lost sight of things just because that was me, you know, and I feel I live in a day-to-day -day kind of world. But yeah, during this time, you know, I mean, when there's, I don't really have any connection right now. It was just like the one thing where I'm like, look, if you're out there and you can hear this, you know, I'd appreciate it if you just like get me through this day. And yeah, here I am today and I'm feeling better today than I have last month. So, hey, I got to say, <laughs> 
I feel I feel happy that that, that I've had that. You know. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, man. Like, I, I I'm not very spiritual. I'm not very religious, but I respect everybody's views and everything. It's just it hasn't ever really happened for me per se. But I yeah, think, I think that's a luxury because. You know, like, I don't know if you've ever seen Religious, that Bill Maher movie, but he says, Of course, I love it. Yeah, he says, You know, I understand, you know, if you're in a foxhole, all you have is God. (laughs) Exactly what I was thinking of when I was talking to you. It's like, if you're in prison, why so many of these people that like murder somebody and then they go to prison and then they're like, You know, I've, I've found God. And I think that's because in those moments, there is nothing else for them. And I feel like that's probably. You know, a thing that I I understand because, yes, you know, sometimes it takes a really fucked up situation in the world to teach you some lesson. And I feel like if anything, I can take away from this, you know, okay, hey, I I was always really awkward and I can never do. I always felt weird getting on live video and like, hey, guys, you know, and and I I started doing it. And that's one thing I'll say, like, I never would have did that if it wasn't for this stupid pandemic. And after this ends. I'm still going to do that. And it taught me that it taught me that I could be out on the road somewhere and I could connect with our fans and our friends and play some songs for the people that maybe can't come to the shows and it excites the fan base. So maybe they'll want to come to a show. Yeah. So yeah, so that, and then obviously I feel this, this spiritual connection I've, I've had, I think organized religion can turn a lot of people off. And I understand that because for me growing up in small town, Indiana, where you grew up, you know, we we're inundated with that and we get all these people that turn their, their eye uh, or turn their backs to like science because, and they say it's in the name of religion. I feel like for me, I'm a firm believer of science and I feel, I get it why people think the two contradict each other, but I feel you can have some sort of spirituality and something in your life that, gives you a little hope, but also be a firm believer in something that's scientific. Because to me, if I dive down that rabbit hole and start thinking about the ways everything contradicts each other, sure, I could pick that apart, but I'm not gonna. I'm just gonna go with right now, it's helping me, and <laughs> I'm gonna leave the, leave the bullshit part of it that turns people off and always turn me off and just try to go with the good, because that's all I can do right now, you know, and it's helped, so... But yeah, I, I totally get you. And religious, religious is great. Such oh, it's, a great it's, documentary. It's wonderful, man. But I always tell, like, I've got some friends, you know, growing up where we grew up, you're going to undoubtedly have some friends that are kind of on that other side. And yeah. you know, I've talked to a lot of my friends and, and they, they kind of dispute science. And I'm like, listen, if you believe in God and he's real and he created everything, then God is a scientist. I agree. <laughs> I mean, there's science me, in yeah. the world. I mean, it's all science. So. Yeah, I mean, if you go back to like all of the great, you know, forefathers of everything, you know, Socrates and like, you know, Aristotle and all these guys, I mean, you know, there was science at the core, like the foundation of all that. And, and you know, obviously it's like my, my wife, she's a neuroscientist and she grew up going, going to Catholic school and stuff. And she definitely, you know, has way more knowledge about those things than me. And I'm sure growing up in a school where religion is shoved down your throat, it really turns you off from it. I luckily had a mother and father that were really, really cool and let me decide what I want. And, you know, my dad, before he died, he later started reading the Bible. And my mom, she always believed in God and she went to church and stuff. And and we'd go to church on like holidays and stuff, but occasionally, but they never shoved it down my throat. But if it was, I feel I would have probably just hated it. 
Yeah. But luckily they didn't. And they, and, and around like 2003, I just decided for myself, like, Hey, I just think there's something more in the universe. My life is this well-crafted plan that all this amazing happenstances happen. And I just started feeling like, I just want to believe that there's no way that the little moments I could trace back that were so random just didn't happen for some sort of reason. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, there's plenty of things in life I feel are definitely free will. But for me, uh, I guess my life, it's been uh, something I feel very lucky for. And I'm never taking those good things for granted. So I, I feel for me, maybe there's something more. <laughs> but uh, I'm not going to ever force how I feel on anybody. Cause that to me is just bullshit. <laughs> well, I think, I think you handle it the correct way. Like you're, you're at a time in your life where, you know, your ideas are that there is something more, but you're not really putting a label on it. Like, I think that's when people, like you said, organized religion, people get into trouble by claiming they have all the answers. Oh, that's the worst. Yeah. It's like people who are, you know, Oh, I'm straight edge or Oh, I'm vegetarian. I'm so hard lined on this. You know, I, I don't want to, give myself too many absolutes in case I change my mind. Cause you know, you always have that right to change your mind. But if you start backing yourself into a corner, especially when you're in a position publicly where people follow your thing and what you do musically or otherwise, you'll get those people like, Hey man, but weren't you once a, you know, this, I, I remember those kids would get straight edge <laughs> tattoos and they'd be the biggest fuck ups getting wasted. And it's like, people would always tease them. And it's like, Hey man, you have your right to change your mind become a better person or yeah. become a worse person. But yeah, I just try not to. All my I, old straight edge yeah. friends are all uh, drinkers now. So <laughs> yeah. Well, but that, I, I think, know. I think it's kind of like religion and maybe it can work opposite. As you get older, you start to become more spiritual without put it, really putting a label on it. But also a lot of the straight edge guys that I knew growing up, they got into straight edge when they were like teenagers. So of course yeah. you get into your twenties or your thirties, maybe you want to go have a beer once in a while. Like it's not that big of a deal, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of people that do it like that. I do it backwards. Like me, you know, I, I didn't drink till I was 19 at all. And then in my twenties, I drank a lot. I mean, you know, I never, I never was, uh, I never really felt I was much of an alcoholic other than I, you know, my father was. So I definitely had the tendency to be, but you know, I was one of those people that I would drink casually, but when I drank, I, I, you know, I could, I could drink, you know, but I'm always too paranoid to drink too much. And then <laughs> seven years ago, I'm just like, ah, I don't like this anymore. I'm going to stop. So I haven't drank in like seven years, um, at all. And, uh, I don't have any desire to, and you know, you know, I'm not a big drinker at all, man. And like, yeah, I, you never were either. Well, the funny thing is, like, I listened to uh, John on another podcast, and he was talking about some crazy stories of being on the road with the Ataris back in the day. And I was like, man, I'm kind of glad I missed that because when I got in the band, you were kind of like me. Like, the only difference <laughs> was that I smoked cigarettes once in a while, but like, we didn't, really, we didn't really party, you know? Yeah, I, I would. I think for me, like most of the the fun like crazy like goofy um tour room trash stories and stuff like that like the the keith moon type stories that was stuff that i would do sober too and i just loved being the life of the party in that way but there were definitely some other you know people in the band besides me and john over the time that you know did let that party become an abuse issue um and that's unfortunate but um it always is, but, but definitely, you know, we like to have fun. Yeah. But, but even when you, we played music together, we had a lot of fun too in our own ways, oh, but yeah. I mean, yeah, neither of us were partiers ever. 
And it's funny, Brian wasn't either. But then later on, I he think Brian became a little bit more later on. Yeah. He let loose because I feel he was like me when I was younger. He never really did that. And then I think it's one of those things you need to go through to order to like, you know, come back around and be like, okay, cool. I went through this, you know? I mean, see, I did, yeah. I did a lot of drinking and like smoking weed and stuff in high school and in like the beginning of college. And I don't think Brian ever did that. So yeah, well, he grew up in a religious type family. Correct me if yeah, I'm wrong. Yeah, very right? much so, more religious yeah. than than ours. <laughs> yeah, so he needed to let loose respectfully. Yeah. yeah, and and me, I I never did that much when I was a kid, just because I don't know. I never was like a cool kid that hung out with people or went to parties. I just sat in my room writing songs until I was 19 and moved to California. And suddenly I was in Santa Barbara, which is the most social town in the world, where you could literally go out and just talk to people and girls actually talk talk to you because it's such a college town where everybody's friendly and it was like whoa this is weird in indiana you know you couldn't just go up to talk to talk to girls they'd be like what the hell you want you know it yeah, wasn't that yeah. kind of social thing and uh, unless you were like cool or like a sports dude or so yeah it was a different vibe so it definitely let me out of my shell and i was like 19 and i was in this social drinking town I'm like well fuck it i'm gonna gonna do this now and, yeah. I, and I did it and I was like all right I'm bored <laughs> <laughs> well I want to go back a little bit then you know I, I don't have any notes for this I was supposed to be talking to somebody else but you're my buddy and I hit you up you can I, ask me the questions you made for them <laughs> no, okay I'm kidding okay no, uh, no, don't, don't. when you recorded no I'm not gonna say that. <laughs> I'll just give everybody a hint it was a band another band that got fairly popular off of a cover song so uh, that's the one, the one parallel you can draw, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, with us, you know, I mean, we, we, we had enough of a following before. Oh, definitely. definitely. definitely I, I didn't mean that that was like, it. no, I know what you meant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But with, with them, I, I don't think, I think, uh, they didn't tour and have as many big records before from what I knew, but maybe yeah, it was on, it was on like their debut record. So if it, people yeah. don't even know who we're talking about. They might know who we're talking about, but yeah. Okay. But yeah, good guys. <laughs> so when you were young growing up in Indiana, you know, I, the last time you were on the show, we didn't really talk about this. We talked about getting signed and everything, but you know, what got you into punk rock? Cause I know you loved kiss. I know you were into music and that makes sense, but how did you go down that punk rock rabbit hole? Um, I kind of did it backwards. I mean, you know, like you, I loved like, I love like thrash metal, like not, you know, good metal, like Metallica and Slayer. And that got me into like skate stuff. Like I, I never skated. I wasn't good at any of that. I mean, I rode BMX bikes for fun on the street, but that was it. But like, uh, that got me into like, uh, DRI and seven seconds and misfits. Cause like I'd see cliff wear like misfit shirts. And I like went down that road, but then I kind of, I, I never got full bore into it. I kind of started, I'd always watch 120 minutes and headbangers ball. And I remember on 120 minutes, I really fell in love with like Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr. And the cure and all that. But it wasn't until I really discovered like punk rock with melody. And, and, and at that time there wasn't that many melodic punk bands. But when I first heard the descendants, they were like the first. And then the first two green day albums came out. Um, and I knew uh, I played uh, my first band when I was 13, played a party of a, a basement party in like Yorktown or Muncie town over from Anderson. For those who, where I grew up, for those who don't know where that is. That's uh, where and, I and live right now, actually. Yes. <laughs> and that's like the cooler college town. So she was like the, the slightly older, cooler girl. And they had, we played this basement party and she had a cassette tape that had Sam, I am sore and jawbreaker on fun on it. And 24 hour revenge therapy was just about to come out. I remember she also had a tape with green day, 
10,039 Smooth, and Kerplunk. And I remember just falling in love with all those records and falling in love with all the Descendants. And I was like, okay, I love all this indie stuff, like Sonic Youth and all those bands, but I'm not good enough to play that yet. And I love, you know, melody. So it was like, okay, I want to I, I write music that's singable and actually has hooks and melodies. So when I heard all those bands and how good the lyrics were in like Jawbreaker and those, you know, it was like, all right, this speaks to me. And I started writing stuff that was in that world. And uh, then I just started like getting into a lot of the other, there was a band from Chicago called Sludgeworth and they had a lot of good melody and they opened for all when I saw them uh, at that time. And uh, yeah, that was like the rabbit hole and it opened it up. But um, a funny short story though, of like my first, like my first punk rock album I bought was this compilation that Pusshead put out, you know, like Zorlax skateboards, yeah, yeah, Pusshead. Yeah. He did Dude, all the no, early Metallica stuff, man. I used to have that yes. skateboard. I wish I still did. Yeah, because we were both Metallica nerds of early Metallica. But other <laughs> we're going to talk about know, that before I let you go. Don't worry about it. Oh, I'm down. I'm down. But um, but other people who don't know, Zorlak did all the artwork for all that cool early Metallica art, and so I found this LP and it had all these like uh, it was like a compilation called Cleanse the Bacteria and A1 Records and Downtown Anderson had it, the old A1, and um, I bought it because it had that 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 art on it, which is so striking. And I was like, oh, I know this. This is the guy who does the the art from Metallica stuff, and and it had um, mostly like foreign bands from all over the world. So I didn't even know some of these bands were not speaking English. It just sounded so like <laughs> it was just so crazy. It was a lot of like crust and power violence bands, and like there were some like just weird British bands and like bands from Japan and Finland. And but the band that spoke to me on it, but there was Poison Idea and Seven Seconds were the a couple of the American bands. Other than that, there was like early corrosion and conformity with like uh the first singer the better singer and then uh, with mike singing and then uh uh like septic death but then most of the bands were were foreign but seven seconds there were a couple songs from walk together rock together and i went out and bought that cassette and i was like this is great and then i had a friend who convinced me to trade him my mom's cordless phone <laughs> when she was sleeping one night for a Black Flag first four years cassette and a Minor Threat out of out of step cassette and awesome. a slightly shittier cordless phone, <laughs> my mom was not stoked at all. Did you just put the phone in there like so she woke up and thought all of a sudden her phone morphed into something else? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she woke up and she saw that phone. She's like, and my mom, you'd know, but other people don't know. And my mom is either kind of pissed or she is a little bit more. I just wants to say something kind of adamant that she knows all she'll, she'll go Chris. And it almost <laughs> sounds like she's saying K R E E dash U S yeah. Chris. <laughs> and, and she shouted my name and I'm like, I'd, I'd been up all night and uh, I woke and I was like, what? She's like, where's my corner phone? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, I, I think I had to go get it back. But I, maybe, maybe he already traded it to somebody else or she didn't want to give it back. But, Moral of the story is I got Minor Threat out of step and Black Flag for his four years. And I liked it, but I went back and finally rediscovered those bands after I fell in love with all the good, like early melodic stuff, like like the Descendants and and uh, the second wave of all that, like Sam I Am and Jawbreaker and all that. So uh, I had Tim Barry from Avail on a couple months back, and he was talking Great, about the first time he saw the Ataris, and it was when you were <laughs> playing with the drum machine. 
we opened for them at the Emerson, them and Citizen Fish. That was funny because he's like, you used to play on the Ataris? I said, yeah. He goes, were you in it when there was a drum machine? I said, no, sir, but I know all the stories. <laughs> <laughs> so That's with that funny. whole thing, was it just like you guys couldn't, you and Jason, right? You guys couldn't find a drummer or you just it was easier just to do that? No, I, we would have never did that if it wasn't just something like we had to. We Yeah, we, there, were, there were no drummers. No one could afford a drum set. And if they were, if there was a drummer, they just played like death metal and like like early death metal, like Morbid Angel and Deicide and Napalm Death, and that was fine. But like nobody that was good that could play the style of music we wanted to play in Indiana at the time. Just the drums are expensive, and people wouldn't have space to rehearse them, and you know, and so uh, it was one of those things where I always had a drum machine that I would program all the the drums for our demos. Uh, and it was like, well, look, you know, we're getting show offers, but we don't have a drummer. So like, let's just <clears throat> do this out of necessity. And so we did. And, uh, it was always like visually lacking because, you know, it was two people. It's like, I love big black, but watching live videos of big black, it was the same thing. You know, there was like no visual of a drum. It's like when you see a drummer, that's the vocalist, it's like, man, <laughs> it's something that doesn't quite connect with me. Uh, I feel you need that presence up there. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I can see acoustic people for days. That's different. But when it's a band, <clears throat> it's different. So, um, but yeah, we opened a lot of shows because the dude at the Emerson always knew that we, we had a friend who worked at Kinko's and we would get free copies for days. <laughs> so we would go, go there at 2 a.m. and he would just like, hook us up with a copy card that had a thousand dollars of copies on it and we would just copy we would make so many flyers and we were so good about driving around and taking them that he would put us on every show we opened for the mr t experience the queers um and these were all just when i it was just me and buddy jason in the drum machine that's crazy and at the time i was playing bass because he played guitar and it was like well we don't have a bass player either, so I'll just play bass. And I recorded all the bass on all the records. It was like, why not? And uh, yeah, so it was all necessity. But we made do, and then later moved to California, and I found found a drummer. But not until then. So back in those early days with the drum machine, you guys are playing the Emerson quite a bit because you know you've got the Kinkos hookup. What were you playing? Any other kind of shows? Were you going out of town? Like, what was the scene like back then? Uh, no, at the time we played. We played, uh, there were a couple other places to play in, in Indianapolis. As you probably knew, there was a place, a little basement place that did a lot of good shows. Um, the, the sitcom on, uh, like Tenson college. I remember and that, that was place, the, yeah, yeah. the seediest of neighborhoods at that time or like 42nd college. But I, I got a gun pulled on me, Kevin seconds there one day. Um, some little kid came up, he was eight years old. He was waving a gun and I was talking to Kevin seconds there during the day before they played, they were playing, and a couple couple hours after, and um, and this little kid came come up, and he started waving this gun in our faces. It just took us by surprise, and we were like, "Holy shit, that's a real gun!" He goes, "Which one have you been talking about, my mama?" We're like, <laughs> "What? Which one have you been talking about, my mama?" And and he, and I think Kevin said something like, "Dude, what's up?" He goes, "Shit, man, I'm not a good shot anyway," and he just walked away. I was like, "That's fucking surreal." Thinking back, and an eight year old kid pulled a fucking gun on us right in our faces, but um. Yeah, it was a, you know, there were good shows there. We opened for um, a really early startup version of Any Flag there. And um, they didn't even have a record out. They just had a demo. And I had met them once before when they opened for Propagandi. And right right around the time Less Talk More Rock came out. So again, they just had a demo cassette. And um, 
yeah, they, I saw them in St. Louis and, uh, we, op- I, we opened for them and they're like, Oh yeah, we remember you. And, uh, that was me and Jason, the drum machine. We opened for some other shows there, some indie shows, some really good bands from Chicago. But I mean, that was about it at the time. It was just the Emerson, the sitcom. There were a lot of like VFW shows, but I don't think we played any of those. We didn't ever go out of town because we couldn't really get shows. Did you do stuff at A1? Because I know you did some stuff after the band signed and you got Derek in the band at A1. Yeah, we did play there with the drum machine too. Uh, I remember because some dudes from my old band, uh, one of the guys, he was just kind of being a dick. And he, uh, at the time, you know, he was, he was, I don't know, whatever. He, he, would turn, he kept trying to turn down the channel that the drums were on in the PA just to be, to be stupid. But you know, that was a show that's, that was after a one had moved to the its last location on down in park place. Yeah. So yeah, we played, played there. And then we, then when, and Derek to kind of like test out things and we had heard that Derek had a heroin addiction. We, we had, we had went to show at, at Bogarts to see a band play that were on fat. And we knew um, <clears throat> that, those most people were friends of Derek. So we got on the list, we got, we got backstage and we, we talked to some of the guys in the band and they were like, Oh, so we hear Derek's going to be in your band. And like, yeah. Then one of the guys is kind of warm. He's like, you know, he's got, a, got an addiction problem. Right. I'm like, yeah. He's like, he's a great drummer and a good guy, but you just got to watch out. So he kind of warned us and I'm like, yeah, we keep hearing this and there was no internet. So it was all word of mouth, but it, it kind of the reputation of, of, of Derek, that he was a great drummer, but he had this, this, you know, monkey on his back. It kind of sucked. <laughs> So he came out and he's like, look, you know, I want to come out there and, you know, get clean and, and, and live with you guys. And we were living in this tiny apartment that we turned the heat off and, you know, we, you know, we just basically practiced and it was a one room apartment and we slept on the floor around the drum kit on this like stone floor with no heat in the middle of like February or March. It was, was this fucking in, in Anderson or Indianapolis, Indianapolis. Yeah. Okay. I was, okay. I was staying down in Indianapolis at the time. And, uh, so I slept on Jason's floor and, you know, and, and, uh, you know, that was, that was his place he lived at and Derek moved out there. And at that time, you know, I just felt like kind of, we, we played a couple shows. We played a record release show at Missing Link in Anderson or in Indianapolis in Broad Ripple. That was our actual record release for anywhere but here. And that was cool. But, um, you know, at the time Kung Fu didn't have any distribution and it was just one of those things they were trying to push that album is this is Derek's new band. And Derek didn't like that. He wanted to be distance from you know his previous thing he he was proud of Lagwagon, but i think he got this he, he wasn't super into that kind of music he he loved like similar stuff like elliot smith and like you know just super like good singer songwriter stuff and i think he was happy to be part of a new band without that connotation and so he was kind of bummed that they they wanted to market it but he got he got why but you know i think once kung fu realized that the you know the record didn't get mixed properly because i wasn't there it just didn't sell. It probably sold like a thousand copies or something. And, and um, it wasn't until Blue Skies that the band actually uh, finally got some distribution and helped the label actually get some distribution by that record. Uh, records. So back, you know, when you guys first signed Kung Fu, I'm sure you were super stoked. It was like kind of, you know, everybody's dream. It's almost like a movie. Like when uh, when Marco was on the show, we were talking about that about how it's almost like a movie. Like, you know, you give your demo tape to someone and then you get signed. It doesn't happen very often. So once that happened, what was like the general consensus of the other bands around the Indiana kind of area? Because like, was everybody happy for you guys or did anybody really know like how great that was? Like how, how did that feel for you? 
I think for us, you know, we, 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 we have played some big shows, but I, I just think with the drum machine, even for me, it, like I said, it was just kind of a place marker until we found a drummer. So it was hard, I think, for some people to take us seriously because we play these sold out shows at a 600 cap venue opening for these big bands. But for me, it was still like really like I was very intrepid, always getting on stage. Like I was proud of the songs and I knew that I knew that I had some songs. But at the same time, like I didn't want to be playing with the drum machine. It was just I, it was the only it was better than not playing. And it was like mate, the whole deal with doing that and having this demo was to try to find a drummer. So it was always when we were playing shows, it was like. I would even mention on stage, like, hey, we've been looking for a drummer. Hey, you know, it was like, at least we're getting out there. Maybe we can find a drummer. So that was always kind of the thing. Um, and even when Derek moved out there, we only played a handful of shows because it was just one of those things like we didn't know how to book shows. We were starting up. But um, so we were never really on the radar of even playing with a lot of local shows, too. I just don't feel like at the time, because we didn't have a release out yet, we never really built up a good following or a draw until after I moved to California and started the band out there with <clears throat> with the lineup, like the kind of four-piece after Derek had left. So I don't think anybody really registered. I'm sure there were some people that were just kind of like, that fucking band got signed, whatever. <laughs> That's what I meant, because, I mean, you know how like other bands are. Like I just remember on a smaller scale, my first band was called Chronic Chaos, and we would play the Emerson all the time because we flyered, and it was kind of the same deal. We worked hard to make the shows well, like really good, so they gave us the spots, and all the Indianapolis bands were pissed off at us because we were from Muncie. Yeah, there's always going to be that rivalry. You know, for me, like... I feel like, you know, you know, there's probably, you know, since I was from Anderson, there weren't many bands there. I think of anyone, there were probably some people at that time that were, that I used to play music with. They were probably like, yeah, they probably, I would imagine felt that first, but most of those guys later were proud of what I did. And I, and I always tried to carry the flag for everybody I grew up with and all those bands. And I went back and filmed our videos in Anderson. I went back and, Oh, you know, I, I covered songs from those bands and I always try to talk about all the great bands I grew up with, be it like FON or, or my first band or, or, uh, you know, VPF or some of these bands that were like, I always felt like some of those bands should have been bigger than so many other bands out there, like crank pen, or there were just some great bands in our town. Unfortunately, around the time I was playing with the Ataris with the drum machine, there weren't a lot of bands playing similar styles of music that we played. So we'd always just get thrown on these hodgepodge bills with a lot of just like bad locals that didn't have any songs. And it was like, so I just don't feel like the scene really existed very yeah. well back then. Yeah. There were some good bands, but they were like heavier bands. Uh, I think probably some of the guys that played in like burn it down later, like John Zepps, they, they, they you know, or Downey, they, they probably had bands that were good, but we didn't play with those bands. So those bands I liked, but there weren't many bands. I mean, yeah. So not enough to be jealous of, but yeah, I'm sure there was some of that, but, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were mentioning, uh, you know, getting into green day on their first couple records. There's one thing that I saw the other day and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, you've told me the story before that you're actually on the back cover of dookie. Is that right? Supposedly that is the case, but fucking, uh, the other day I saw them post that that show, that picture was taken at, roselands in new york and yeah. that was a few days after the chicago show so i am of the belief <laughs> that somebody is remembering the fucking date wrong because it is plain as day my head and my girlfriend's head and i remember 
at the show that was a few days earlier at the Riviera with Bad Religion, All Green Day, and Seaweed. That was the uh, show, that, like a, uh, a big label show. Uh, they were pissed because they played before all. And from what I understand, all of them kind of went at odds because they wanted to play right before Bad Religion, who were the headliner, because label people were there. And Dookie was going to come out the following year. They were, um, yeah, so I don't, I don't, I, I, again, I am of the, 75% that that cover that back cover photo was taken at the Riviera. But again, I'm, I'm not going to argue with somebody in the band. If they say it was taken at Roseland. Maybe, maybe so, but I don't remember dates at all. If you ask me, Hey, when was that photo taken? I'd be like, fuck if I know. So maybe they're off by a few days. And Oh, that was taken <laughs> at Chicago. But again, I can't dispute the fact that I know what my dumb big ass head looks like. <laughs> and you can see my Evan Dando bowl cut. It's plain as day and the shirt I was wearing that day. And I have photos and I compare them after that. I'm like, nope, that's the same shirt. And I remember the Ernie sock puppet. And I remember the girl with the overalls who was standing right behind me because yeah. she kind of looked like somebody I knew. So I don't know. Again, I believe it's it's taken on the Riviera, but who knows? <laughs> well, wasn't there another album cover or something or back sleeve or something you were on? What band was it? Am I imagining that? I remember you telling me these stories on tour few things. I was on the cover of Avail live at the bottom of the hill because okay. that photo was taken at the Emerson. I think that might have been the show we played. I'm front row center with dirt stash and all with my squirt gun shirt on. <laughs> awesome, man. You could pick me up again with the Evan Dando bull cut, um, yeah. Evan Dando of the Lemon Heads. And then uh, I am somewhere buried in the sea of people on the live uh, Sloppy Seconds album, also taken to the Emerson. Awesome. And then uh, other than that, I have some other goofy cameos. I was in the squirt gun video for their song uh, uh, "Burn for You." I, I, I'm animated in that, and then in the "Me First and the Gimme Gimme's video for "I Believe I Can Fly," that was filmed on <laughs> Warp Tour. Yeah, uh, they came and like got everybody to do guest stars, guests of that. And I sang on the Lagwagon album. Let's talk about feelings. I did backups on the song "Train," and uh, I, I did harmonies for the song "Messengers," but I don't think Joey used those. Yeah, so. That's that's my uh, cameos. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> oh, and in my career, I, I had me sing on an MXPX album before and anything, everything after. I sing on one song. Uh, forgot the song because uh, I don't know that album as well. And my, Mike, Mike did some backups on "So Long a Story" on a couple songs, right? On radio number two, yeah, he yeah, okay. sings the backups on that. That's what I thought. Yeah, and Joey sings some backups. I forgot. Somebody pointed out. I forgot uh, the song "Answer" on Blue Skies. He sang on uh, on that song. Have you had a chance to listen to Joey's episode of this podcast? I haven't. I, I don't. Uh, I listen to. There's uh, quite a lot. There's a lot of Chris Rowe talk. That's we're talking really? about being in the studio with the Ataris. Oh, yeah, goodness. He, he, it's all good things. But if you get a chance, you need to go back and check it out. That's cool. I, I, I honestly, it was one of those things where like me and Joey hadn't talked for a long time because after we recorded in this forever, I, I can't say. I mean, I always loved working with Joey, and I always loved Joey. But it was one of those things where like I'm like, you know, it kind of bummed me out that Joey and Joey and me never talked anymore. And I always kind of told people who knew him, like, hey, tell Joey I'm thinking of him. And I, you know, hope he knows I like him and I still think about him. But it, I, I think it was just weird doing Indus Forever because I really love the Armchair Martian album, uh, Hang On Ted. It's got these big room sounding drums. And he also, and uh, Jason Livermore, who works at the Blaster Room, also did this Shiner album. And I love the drums on that. Uh, and, and I really had this vision for what I wanted the album to sound like. Just, you know, uh, after Blue Skies, I wanted to continue evolving, do something different. And I think Joey and me and Jason kind of butted heads a little as a three. It was just like one of those things. And I think Bob, who records 
me now, Bob Hogue, one time asked Jason, he goes, hey, what was up on In This Forever? And I think Jason just said, like, you know, man, too many cooks. Because <laughs> we're all producers in our head, you yeah, know? And, yeah. and um, I think at that time, I, I had a vision. Jason had an idea. And I liked everybody's ideas, but it's one of those things. I think you just need two people. And at times, Joey was great. And at times, Jason was great. But I think all of us at once. I think the best work on that album got done. Cause I got sick in the studio. Uh, I was staying with a girl who had had cats, and I got a bad like post nasal drip that turned into bronchitis. So half the vocals I did on that album, the ones I did at the Blast Room, I'm just never happy with. And then we recorded the other half. I didn't have lyrics completed, so I was writing lyrics in the studio, and I felt pressured, and I just never felt the lyrics for the first half of the album were any good. So then the second half we recorded later at Orange Whip with Angus and Tom, who did a lot of recording on other albums. I feel like those songs turned out the best <laughs> because <laughs> I had the most time and I was in the right headspace and I wasn't sick. So yeah, but that's my tangent, but Joey, I love him. And, and, uh, yeah, that's cool to know that he, he mentioned oh, my he, stupid he, ass. He had all show. kinds of good things to say that just one of the stories he said, I think it was the first time you guys worked together. He said that you guys were like going over the, the vocals and the lyrics and he's like, you know, you shouldn't use love as much as you use love. The word I love. remember that. <laughs> it was it was a really good tip. It's like Lou Lou Giordano when we recorded So Long Astoria, he just said this really simple thing of like, you know, songs like actually have a structure. You need to have like peaks and valleys. And he just taught me how to do a verse and a chorus and a verse and a chorus. Give us some formula. Not be too formulaic. Yeah. You don't always have to have formula, but he really taught me structure. And I never knew that before. If you listen back to San Dimas, it's a song that just goes. There's no chorus, there's no <laughs> verses. But dude, like, but arguably, but- arguably one of the you know most well-known Atari songs by the fans, oh. you know. No, totally. I mean, I, I I love that song, and I I I just think about how I could never write the same thing again yeah. because my mind now would just never go down that route of like, doom, 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 you know, like. But but Joey, I do remember that. Now you mentioned that, and he's like, he really gave me a couple good pointers of like, look, you know, like he listened to a song like my hotel year and he kind of gave me some direction. Like, this is like these vivid kind of stories that you're writing, you know, do more of that because you're good at it. And it doesn't all have to be a love song. And if it is, you can write it in a way that is a little more coded and a little more visual and vivid. Yeah. And, you know, cause we loved again, me and Joey, we, we both loved like Tom Waits and Elliot Smith and these singer songwriters and these people that wrote these really incredible songs. And he was, he's like a pop guy and he's not a punk rock guy. And same with me. We love like pop, like good pop, not like pop, like, you know, Taylor Swift, you <laughs> know, yeah, she writes yeah. good songs, but you know, like, like Elvis Costello and squeeze and, and big star and like Nick Lowe and all that's like pop, like of the, of that good era. And so, um, he really taught me, yeah, how to really dive deep. And, and, and he was one of the first that kind of gave me that little push, that little shove to help me be a better songwriter. So, yeah, thanks for the for <laughs> you, memory. You got to go back and check it out. He talks a lot about you, actually. I ask him a lot of questions about working with you and well, stuff. And it's, it's, well, dude, he should have me on his show. I'll, 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 I'm, now I'm going to message him and be like, dude, what the fuck? Let's be <laughs> friends. I, we haven't talked in ages. I, I love you, man. Wait, if you, if you yeah. don't have his phone number, I'll hit you up with it. <laughs> Uh, I feel weird texting. Yeah, I know. I'll, I was, I'll, I'm I'll just message get through around. somebody. But yes, I'll, I'll ask him. But I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> I, I'm sure Marco or somebody. I, I'll yeah. be like, yeah, Marco, message Joey and Tom. Fucking text. Me. <laughs>
There's a pandemic going on. Nothing but love now. So, Reunite. You know, with this <laughs> pandemic going on, one thing that I've always been interested in, and I don't know if there's any future plans for this or anything, but, you know, there has been this ongoing thing of when will the new Atari's record fully come out, like an actual album. Do you think that that is a thing yeah. that's going to happen, or do you think that it's going to be single-based, kind of like what you've been doing lately because of streaming and nobody really buys physical much anymore? Do you think that the the whole idea of a full-length Atari's album is kind of over? Well, I agree with the, like, you know, the streaming and stuff has made people who buy, buy like, you know, download albums uh, a little more obsolete, like pay to download an album. Yeah. But people do buy, buy vinyl. I sell more vinyl on shows and I do shirts. And, you know, I like the idea of a full-length record because I'm 43 and I think in, like, side A and side B, and that's just my mind. And I like the artwork and I like to just put it all together. And that feels good, you know? And, and it's, like, cathartic to finish something. For me, you know, I've written, like I've mentioned on the live stream, that, like, recorded about 20... 20 to 30 full songs. Some have lyrics, some have vocals, some don't. And then I've written about like 200 or more fragmented ideas. And there's some really good ones in there. Some newer things I've written. It's just a matter of like honing in and finishing like one batch to put yeah. on a record. Yeah. Cause sometimes I'll, I'll finish the song in the studio and then I'll write something else. I'm like, fuck, this is way better. And then I've already moved on like to another full album in my mind of like something else. So yeah, I just got to focus on that. And like the first four weeks of pandemic being sick, I, I couldn't be creative at all, but I've got to this point now where I have nothing but time and I've, and this, and this uh, live stream has helped me be so much more creative. And I, on my way to the dentist, to the two hour drive to the dentist the <laughs> other day, that's what happens when you want to be safe in the desert. You don't want to drive to the, the big ass town. You, you have to find some small town dentist two hours away. But on that drive, I wrote some really great lyrics. I was proud of. And so there's been good that's come out of this, but, um, yeah, I don't want to do just single songs, but I've been releasing some single songs on the band camp, some demos, uh, one song where all the music was done, but the vocal was a demo that I did over the completed music. Um, just because I want to give people a taste and something to tide them over to let them know that, hey, I do want to release a record and I have been creative. It's just that you haven't fucking heard a lot of those songs. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason why is partially because I got to go on tour to pay for the recording yeah, yeah. and then I'll come home and it'll be a month off and I'll want to take that month just to spend time with my wife and then I'll go back on tour, you know, to pay bills. And, and so it's like that coupled with, you know, some bit of writer's block at times, um, you know, some people are like, Hey, do a Kickstarter. But I'm the type of guy where I grew up in a time where even asking for tips and donations for live streams, it was hard at first, but I realized that 90% of the people get it. And the 10% that like, Hey man, what is this handout time or something? Hey, I, I can happily say in a nice way, just, Hey dude, I would much rather be out working and playing shows right now, but there's a pandemic going on. And just like you, I'm out of work. I don't make money any other way, but touring. And if you don't get that, then go somebody else's live stream and, and complain. And, and I think most people get that, but Kickstarter, I have too much pride. I don't want to ask somebody to pay for my recording. I'd rather give them something and they could pay for that. And I'll use the money for the recording. Yeah. And I think maybe this live stream thing has given me, once we get back to touring, it'll give me a little way to make some money when we're not touring. Uh, you know, not a lot, but enough to maybe help supplement to help fund recording. So that's good. So I'm looking forward to hopefully getting back to touring and being able to fund some recording again. 
But in the meantime, I'm going to be working on songs as much as I feel inspired during this pandemic, for sure. So, you know, the thing that's cool about the streaming and everything now, like all the new stuff that you've released on Bandcamp is also streaming on Spotify and Apple Music. So I'm sure you're doing like, you know, kind of DIY distro stuff through distro. No, I'm not. I don't know how that's happening. I either it's because somebody's making money off of it then. All of it on our band campus. Well, I'm just saying, like silver turns to rust, and like all oh, the- that that no that is released through our label Cleopatra. Which oh, that's Kung on Cleo. Okay, see, because so I thought silver- you were just doing everything yeah. in house. No, no, no. Um, some things like the demo of the song Car Song, or some of those things that are exclusive like that. Um, those are just me putting in Bandcamp, and I don't use like I don't use TuneCore or anything yeah. like that to upload to Spotify. I, I don't um, because Spotify, they, they, it just it's not enough money anyway to even fuck with. Yeah. Now Cleopatra, anything they license from me to put out, uh, put out through the label as an official release, that will go in Spotify. Like we recorded a live set last year that's a really incredible soundboard that I had forgot about, and I had uh, last month on the first when Bandcamp did the thing where they waived their fee and give it all the bands. I was like looking through my my hard drive and I'm like, holy shit, this live set sounds incredible. And I was like, well, fuck, I'll put it online. And I did. And then uh, afterwards, I was like, well, why don't I ask the label if they want to press a vinyl of this? And they're like, sure, we'll give you some money to press vinyl. So now that Live in Chicago release will be on Spotify. And it's coming out as vinyl. uh, Probably depends on the pressing plants right now. They're kind of backlogged because of the the COVID. But um, I would say at the latest by fall, but um, probably sooner if we're lucky. But um. Yeah. That takes me to another question then from the streaming. I noticed that there is like a new re-recorded version of Boys of Summer. Can you kind of explain what yeah. happened there? Mm-hmm. Let me take a drink of my orange juice. Um, <laughs> yeah. The label came to me and they're like, look, we always get requests to do licensing rights for this song, but the master is owned by Sony. Now, if you've seen on... In many cases, like a band like Unwritten Law re-recorded an entire record, Taylor Swift... She's recording all of her catalog so she could, you know, own it. And with, with Song Astoria, like, you know, I wrote those songs and I own the publishing. But if somewhere we're going to say, hey, we want to put one of those versions of a song in a commercial or something, I don't know the publishing. Like, Don Henley and Mike Campbell get the publishing money. Yeah. But if for some reason they got a request for that and they're like, here's a couple bucks we could put in your pocket, but we don't own the master. I would get the, uh, the sync licensing for the commercial. He still gets the publishing, but I would get the fee for the licensing of the song. So we recorded it at me and Dustin, our drummer went to Bob's studio in Arizona and where we recorded all the new songs. And my goal was to just make it sound as good as we play it live and as true to the way it was recorded the first time, but do it in a way where, you know, it's not going to take away from the original, but just sound as good. And I think we ended up coming out with something that sounds identical, but better. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and there, there are me, definite little like things you can tell. Like I've listened to it a million times, of course. But yeah, it, I think it's I think great. The, the vocal is so much stronger because I'm such a better singer singer now. And I think like, you know, there were there were definitely times in the studio where I'm like, OK, you know, we play this song so differently live. I want to encapsulate how it sounds live and how it's so much the tones are better. You know, we're recording it in this like studio with all this incredible gear, you know, like old analog gear at Bob's. And it was just one of those things where it was super fun and exciting. We did it in one day 
you know, it was, it was, it was super killer. And um, now granted, I haven't had any licensing, licensing things from it so far, but at least I know when they, people do come, hopefully this summer, usually that's, you know, we did it in the winter. So hopefully this summer when they'll start getting licensing requests for it, it will make me a couple bucks during a time when I need it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, um, but yeah, that's, uh, that was the sole reason why. (laughs) (laughs) So why not working with Cleopatra? Are they more of, I mean, of course they're going to do the vinyl for that live thing and you know, they've done stuff with some of the back catalog, are they a label that when you maybe decide to do this full length, they would be releasing it? Or are you a free agent right now? Uh, I mean, I'm ultimately a free agent to do whatever I want. I'm not on, we're not, I'm not signed to a deal with the label, but they're all really cool people. And they're always super excited to put things out because they know they, their whole thing to me is like, look, if you have stuff you want to put out, as long as it's good stuff, we're happy to do it because we know it sells. We sell, well, they, they'll do a pressing of vinyl. They'll press 500, like a first pressing and they'll immediately sell out of it. So the cool thing is, is people still want to buy releases of these records and vinyl sells really well. And they'll do CDs of things too. And you know, they know CDs don't sell as much, but at least I have product to sell on the road. Whenever I need vinyl for tour, I call them up and I go over there and they, you give me vinyl and then they just charge it towards my royalties. And then, you know, that way, you know, it won't, I'll have to make that money back before I recoup that money. But, you know, luckily most of that stuff's recouped. So it will, it will only take like the rest of the year to, to, to cover it. And, you know, then I can sell vinyl, have vinyl to sell on tour and I make the money that way. So they're, they're good people. And, and they put out some good stuff. They put out the warlocks album, which I love. They put out, um, Danzig's last couple albums and his film stuff. He's one of their good friends. Um, they put out the new Down by Law album. They bought all the back catalog from uh, New Red Archives, which has Sam I Am Soar and all the UK subs stuff and a couple early No Use for a Name albums. So, like, they're really getting good about, like, they, the buying back catalog from labels that would otherwise go out of print. Like, Kung Fu, all of our records, worst case scenario, would have all been out of print or we would have had to find someone to license them to or put them out ourselves, which I don't want to take that on. Yeah. I don't, I ran a record store. I don't want to run a fucking record label, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So luckily Cleopatra putting out good news stuff from bands. But I mean, the thing was they were kind of known as a a label that put out more like goth type stuff like Bauhaus and a lot of back catalog. And they're trying to kind of branch out and, and become a label that, 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 that kind of puts out stuff from a lot of different walks of life and they've kept the Kung Fu imprint. So it's still Kung Fu. They're just, they just own it now. And, and, and they're um, excited about it. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'll cross the bridge of the new album when it comes to it, but I mean, as of right now, I'm happy putting out music with them. And unless there was something that really seemed like an opportunity that would be, you know, like, I don't know, like an epitaph or a fat or something like that might be slightly better. But I don't want to be somewhere where they're not excited. And so far, like in the past, I've tried to reach out to those labels. And it was one of those things where like I've had like small interest. But even though we put stuff out by in the past, I just don't think it's a thing. Like until I had a finished record and they heard it and maybe then they'd be like, oh, that's fucking great. But so I don't know. You know, it's too premature. But when I finish a record, we'll, we'll see. But definitely right now, they're good people. And I like putting out music with them. So I could see putting out more music in the, in the future. So uh, I saw that you guys, uh, like a lot of other artists, and I think it's a great thing, you guys did face masks with Atari's like album covers or whatever. Were you able to snag a couple of those for like posterity? 
I didn't because it was one of those things that it's just my friends in Europe who book our tours there that run that merch store. And it's just kind of become the Atari's main merch store for the time being until the pandemic allows us to open the U.S. merch store, which our drummer is going to run because uh, we had some merch left over from our tour here and he wants to sell it. But it's just a matter of I've got to you know, pay the remaining balance and then have him ship it to Dustin and then Dustin will start selling it. And then I have all the vinyl with me here and I want to ship that to him. But going to find a, a way to ship it right now at a post office, it's like, to me, really anxiety ridden. Uh, I don't want to yeah. deal with it. So, uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're good people and, and um, they're based out of Switzerland, but they ship worldwide and it's super cheap shipping. And um, they were, you know, you just call Joel, my friend who runs it, just called me up one day. He's like, hey man, uh, these people want to do face mask. I'm like, sure, go ahead and do it. He's like, we'll just do a small run and see how they sell. And he did one run of like 50 or a hundred and then they sold out. And then he did another one that was a, they did a blue skies one. They sold out and they did a so long a story. one. I think those are sold out or almost sold out. So, um, but yeah, yeah, I would have liked to have one, but, um, yeah, I'm stuck reusing my two masks. I've had, <laughs> luckily my masks are an N95 mask I had during the wildfires that helped yeah. with my asthma, but I, you know, reusing them is not optimal. But, um, yeah, but today, this morning, I found a guy on eBay last night that was like price gouging for some face masks, some N95 masks. Then I messaged him like, Hey man, you know, my wife's a healthcare worker. I'd like to buy some masks. Would you consider, you know, selling these for, you know, a reasonable price or, you know, and he was near where I am and he's like, Hey man, these already sold, but there is a drugstore that is 30 minutes South of you in this tiny town that has six boxes of N95 masks wow. that were there yesterday. So this morning I fucking drove down there and I bought a box for my wife. <laughs> That's so, awesome, man. Yeah. They price gouged a little, like I know what they were supposed to cost, but they were half of the eBay price. So, you know, I paid like almost a hundred bucks, but I mean, a hundred bucks for 10 of those right now when on eBay, they're going for like 250 bucks. It, it, to me, it was totally worth it, you know, to know that she needs it in, in these high risk situations she's in. Cause they don't have PPE like that. Yeah. We're at her work. They have just fucking normal shitty, like, uh, um, surgical masks. And those are going to protect from, there's been one person at her work that already had the virus and, and they have to deal with patients that have it every day. So I just, I just think the whole mask thing, like bands have been doing that. And I, a lot of the bands have been donating the money or, or whatever, but I mean, it's just cool that they're doing that Thursday took like all the merch they had from a tour and turned them into masks. And I just think that like in 20 or 30 years, it'd be a cool story to like, you know, tell like, Oh yeah, that's the face mask from the <laughs> pandemic of 2020. Uh, yeah. I wish I, yeah, I'll, I'll save some other memento for sure. But yeah, I mean, and for us, you know, I think he did donate some masks, uh, but he's in Europe. Yeah, so it was one of yeah. those things where there was like a couple people like, well, why don't you donate all the money? It's like, look, this is all handled by our merch store in Europe and for them to ship everything from Europe. I mean, they could have did it locally, I guess, but it wasn't going to help, you know, domestically here. If the, for the people who were complaining about, you know, and I'm all about that, but it was like one of those times where I hadn't started doing the live streams yet anyway. And the only bit of money I was making to pay for where I was staying and to pay for my groceries was from that merch store. And it's minuscule. It's like a couple hundred bucks a month. So uh, I, I was um, by no means like yeah. saying it should have been, I, oh, no. the price was great on those, man. I mean, it was, I wasn't awesome addressing price. you. I was more addressing in general for, there was like one person I think that chimed in to the hundreds of people that were super stoked to buy them. I mean, yeah, again, in a perfect world, I would love to do everything for donation and, you know, all the music on the band camps, pay what you want. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. cool. And, you know, I definitely, definitely always try to do generous things, but with the mask, it was a thing where they 
yeah, hey, man, we're going to sell these. I'm like, cool, do it. <laughs> but, um, but yeah. You think they're going to do another run with like another album cover, maybe? Uh, they haven't asked me yet. I guess uh, I, I would be into doing it. I don't know if one of our other album covers would look good on a mask because not not all of them has something as striking as a blue sky sign or a big water tower. Like, yeah. In It's Forever is more an image that's like just a sky with a little sign. And I think we maybe we could blow it up and make the sign more prominent. Welcome to Night wouldn't look very good. The map um, from anywhere but here might look kind of cool on the mask. Yeah, that might. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I could see doing another mask, but I, I, we'd have to figure out like art that would look good from afar without yeah. like getting right up in somebody's face. And like, yo, what's on your mask? That would defeat the purpose. <laughs> He's got to look good from six feet. <laughs> yeah, totally, man. Well, I'll tell you what, I've had you on the phone for a while. I know you've got some work to do to, to get those So Long Astoria songs down. So other than these live streams you've been doing, and I know you've been doing them kind of at different times so the European fans and the Asian fans can also kind of, you know, join in. But what else do you have kind of coming up or are you just kind of on standby right now? Uh, yeah, you know, we have, um, we're trying to work to reschedule some shows for the rest of the year. And some of them have been rescheduled, rescheduled. And I believe about to announce some stuff for the end of the year. Now I hope we'll be at a place in the world where we can play those shows by then. Uh, I'll remain optimistic that we can. There's, there'll be some stuff in Europe and the UK and there'll be some stuff, uh, we're rescheduled that, that that's been rescheduled from our tours that got canceled in America. So yeah, we're going to, we're going to, um, you know, reschedule that stuff for hopefully the end of the year. And, uh, I believe that's when it was rescheduled and in the fall or, or winter and, uh, and we'll announce that stuff. And again, we'll just be optimistic that we can play it. And if not, and if it's going to be a situation where people won't be safe, then we'll reschedule it for, uh, next year, or we'll just cancel it. And, uh, you know, that'll be the next step, I guess. But, um, again, uh, just trying to remain optimistic. And then as far as anything else, I mean, yeah, right now, just the live streams and then trying to work on music when I feel inspired and got to go to the dentist tomorrow, which is a very anxiety ridden task during a pandemic to go yeah. to a dentist, but you know, they won't go away. So I got to get that fixed. And, uh, but, um, yeah, right now just live streams and, uh, today re relearning the handful of songs that I don't, quite remember from so long a story yeah <laughs> but the blue skies live stream was really fun so i'm i'm looking forward to this tonight these songs though i i i remember i was saying this to bob earlier a quick thing about blue skies and astoria blue skies uh, the melodies are super fun to sing and they're like just in, in a range that's so easy for me to sing and, and they're good melodies but they're not like i think some point around so long astoria I just got so advantageous and all the songs just seem to be in a key where even then, like they're, they're such like, like such like high melodies. And, and uh, you know, so at a point where I have an abscess tooth, it's like, Oh my God, there's like three or four songs on album. Like so long a story. looking back on the day in my reply, they, you sing, I, I can sing high notes within a song all the, no problem. Like, I feel like I've got a strong enough voice. I can, I can sing those songs better than I ever have. But those three songs all the way through, just like right at the top of my range. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just like, I think I'm going to transpose these three songs down to a half step or low or, or whole step lower because they'd be so much more fun and enjoyable to sing. Like the lyrical content I love, but I mean, as a melody, it's just like the whole time you're just shouting this high melody and it's like, fuck. <laughs> so I got, that's, that's part of my day today. 
Awesome, man. Well, I tell you what, I got to say, thank you so much for coming on the show short notice. And uh, this is your second time on the show. So hand clap. Thanks for coming back. Second time. Hey, my pleasure, man. It's always fun hanging out with you, buddy. And hope you stay stay safe and well, you and your family. I love you, man. I'm trying, man. Trying to keep these toddlers entertained when the weather's bad outside. It's not easy, you know? Oh, dude, bring some of that rain my way in this <laughs> desert. It's so amazing when it rains. It smells so wonderful in the desert when it rains. Dude, it's been I raining here rain. for like a week straight, man. I'm ready for it to stop. But I follow your weather. My mom, she's always like, man, the storm's so crazy. <laughs> yeah. Man. Well, I hope it gets better, and, and I hope the kids uh, stay entertained and stuff. Cool, man. Well, hey, uh, as always, dude, I love you. I hope you're going to do well. I hope you get to see your wife soon. Stay safe. Thanks, get man. that tooth taken care of, and I can't wait to watch the live stream, man. Thanks, man. And oh, and next time we'll devote a whole episode just talking about old Metallica because we got. Oh yeah, we we got got off on. Well, it's about you though. But yes, maybe maybe your third time back, it'll just be strictly Metallica. I'm down. Let's just have a Metallica episode where we just geek out about Metallica. That that will that will stoke out two people in your audience. (laughs) By the (laughs) way, though, have you been watching their Metallica Monday live streams? I haven't. Are they that great? Because I've seen like some stuff, but I thought it's only stuff that's been released so well, far. Is, is there a lot of exclusive new content? Or like it's it's, uh, it's kind of stuff that's been released in part, but it's full performances, no editing of the actual shows. Awesome. I saw the Chicago show got released from like 1985. Oh, the Metro show. Yeah, it was great. Oh shit! Okay, I'm gonna go back and watch this stuff now that you've recommended it. Yeah, it's all it's all on YouTube, and every Monday they do a new one. And I think this next Monday they haven't announced what it's gonna be yet, but I think it's gonna be something like Master Era, probably. Kick ass! Well, you know me, I still I still go watch go back and watch the documentary all the time because I love it so much, <laughs> and I, I always think of you when. When like you know the sports come on or the or the or the outtakes where it's like yeah we did it I'm always <laughs> like ah Swinney <laughs> oh man I yeah. think I think I always play some music at the end of the episode I'm gonna play an Atari song uh, and I'm also gonna play We Did It by Metallica and Ja Rule you got to I will definitely <laughs> right on man we'll have a great day and thanks for having me on buddy I appreciate it cool man if you need anything at all I know I'm pretty far away but hit me up if you need to talk or anything buddy. Likewise, man. You too. And everybody out there, stay safe. Thanks again. Talk to you later, buddy. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. So there it was, my conversation with my good buddy, Christopher Rowe from the Ataris. I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. I love having Chris on, and hopefully we will get him back in the future for a part three, a record third time on the program. But that is it for today. I hope you guys are safe out there. Please wash your hands. Take care of yourself. People are saying, oh, this is the second wave, but this is still the first wave. We haven't even gotten through the first wave yet. So I care about you. I want to know how you're doing. Call the hotline. It's 765-372-8818. Let me know how things are where you live. You can tell me a story. Make a guest suggestion. You can tell me about the record that changed your life. Maybe you'll get you'll get featured on an upcoming episode. Who knows? But we're just going to keep pushing forward. You can also hit me up on all the socials at TOTOT Podcast. All of these links and all the contact info is at TOTOTPodcast.com. I'd like to give a shout out to our art director, Sarah, over at Road Dog Supply for doing a great job on this episode's artwork. And uh, it's so it's so awesome to work with cool people, and I can't wait to keep working with Sarah over at Road Dog Supply. Check that out on Instagram at Road Dog Supply. I think company CEO maybe. Just search Road Dog Supply, and you'll be able to find it. But like I said, that's it for this episode. 
You can always get in touch with me. There's a million ways. It's not hard. Google that one time on tour and you can find everything. If you can't go to the website, just use your Googling skills and take care of it. Next week on the program, Mr. Jason Hall from Western Addiction. Great Fat Records band. They have a brand new record out. We talk all about it. And it's awesome. We got to talk about how Western Addiction is kind of the black sheep of fat records. It's a really good episode, a really good conversation. So come back next week to hear me chat with Jason Hall of Western Addiction. But I'm going to jump out of here, but not before I play some music. And, you know, being in the Ataris at one point, but also being a fan of the Ataris, I've always really liked the record welcome the night it came out in 2007 it was very polarizing record some people didn't really dig it it was more rock and roll a little bit different than the poppier punky stuff that they'd done in the past so uh there's a song in there called not capable of love and i think it's been on almost every playlist i've ever made so i'm gonna leave you with that some of you atari's fans out there that maybe didn't give as much love to welcome the night maybe you haven't heard this so i'm gonna play not capable of love from welcome the night in 2007 Thank you so much, and I will catch you next week with Jason Hall from Western Addiction. This is Chris. Peace. Not capable of love, that kind.
120. And I see too. That's what time I turn. Ever wonder what a punch from Elton John feels like? Or how you'd cope with having turned down the chance to be in Nirvana? Or what signal Keith Richards gives when he wants you to get the hell out of his hotel room? Fans of Too Much Effing Perspective don't have to wonder, because they've heard these exact stories and a jillion others on our podcast. I'm Alex Hoffman, former tour manager for Radiohead. And I'm musician and comedy writer Alan Keller. On the TMEP show, we get guests like Nancy Wilson from Heart, Jeremiah Freights from the Lumineers, and Modern Family's Julie Bowen to tell us things they may have only shared with their therapist, clergy, or a TMZ stringer. So join us on Too Much Effing Perspective. That's E-F-F-I-N-G Perspective. The only podcast you crank up to 11. Oh.